WTBQ. Good morning. This is Jay Westerveld with Tales and Trails, my weekly show here on WTBQ, radio worth listening to. Our guest last week, uh, by pretty popular demand a lot of the time, was Chris Bell. And uh, as we like to say, Beldar, the poorest rich kid from Tuxedo Park. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, uh, Chris uh, went to, I think you guys both went to TPS, Tuxedo we Park did. School. We did. We were actually in the same class. So my, yeah, my, my <laughs> class, what, what, what kind of talk is this? We're, we're not about that here. No <laughs> politics. <laughs> um, my guest today is uh, Heather, Heather, who... who uh, has been a guest, I think, three times before. Yes, yes. <laughs> Heather's uh, an author and um, is doing some great research for a lot of work now. But most importantly, Heather is has a, a, a really interesting take on uh, world cultural things and seems I, I've, I've found over time, and I've heard this from others, typically uh, an ex- yeah, she sort of has her finger on the pulse of what's going on sort of before we hear about it in the news. And that's always a, a lot of fun. Heather's mom I first met when I was a little boy, uh, my first uh, environmental essay contest I'd won. Um, your mom actually handed me the, the uh, award, which was funny. It was um, a national contest. And um, she wasn't even supposed to be one of the people who did it, but because she headed up the Warwick Conservation Board and a few yes, other things, yes, she and did. she liked my essay, she just took it upon herself and spoke to the people with it and did that. And your dad, uh, who thankfully you spent Easter with, he's still uh, still here in Warwick, and he, he's a renowned um, physician here in Warwick, going uh, back quite a ways. But you know, I hate to discuss somebody's family ahead of them because, and it's happened with me before, uh, and certainly like really? in the ski industry locally. Yeah, I used to always try not to mention my mom because she was a really well-known ski school director for a really, really long time. And um, so I, I hate I hated when people did that. I didn't mean to introduce you that way, Heather. But, you know, That's fine. <laughs> your, your novel... Um, an American, uh, an invisible, invisible woman, woman in, in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Yep. Yeah, mixing it up with uh, a third novel. And uh, your upcoming one that has to do with India. Yes, that'll be based in Tamil Nadu. And we did talk about that a little yes. bit, too. So I've sort of set that aside because I'm working on other projects. Like what? <laughs> that I've gotten distracted by. Uh, well, one of them is this uh, Counting the Kilowatts project, which I'm doing, um, trying to determine, and it's almost impossible how much energy is being produced globally kind of off grid really and uh this is almost something impossible but it's something i believe very strongly that we need to do if we're going to go to renewable energy and get countries to the point where they are not producing so many emissions and we want to do that you have to have a plan and you have to have a plan that is accurate and you don't know how much you need to build you can't start just building uh, which seems to be what's kind of going on right now and there are a lot of plans on the books right now but there are countries all over the world frankly that are already at a hundred percent renewable at least electricity that's amazing which is incredible and electricity um, is kind of everything it is, it is and it isn't. Um, most of transport, cars, trucks, those still mostly operate um, and petrol. 
uh, or point. oil. Sure. Um, and uh, the other the other area that is also heating um, in places is a lot of places. Sure. But then you go to places which is really interesting, like Iceland. Iceland is. 100% renewable, but it's all geothermal. Yeah, it's I mean, they advantage. sort of inherited that. They inherited it, but they also have electric cars. They also use the geothermal on their heating and their electricity. And they are also experimenting with geothermal energy to ele- electrify basically their heavy industry, now, which is if huge. If a, a place like Iceland um, is kind of reliant on geothermal power from a lay perspective and that's my perspective on these things aren't they more or less taking thermal energy from underground and then releasing it into their immediate uh ecosphere so that they're bringing the temperature up no, okay. no, not quite. I mean, I don't mean well, to sound first, like the windmill. First of all, you've got volcanoes which are doing that anyway. They're in harnessing Iceland. in Iceland. Yes. Okay, so yeah, yeah they're, they're they've got that. yeah they've, that's happening anyway. What they mostly do is they harness the heat of the volcano. It's it's a two step process to power the turbines, just like you Excellent. would with a, a a steam turbine. Sure, it's a steam. It's natural. I, steam. I never realized that. That's yeah. really so. It, it's yeah. really ambient heat that's already above ground. So no oh, yeah. one can really point a finger at that. That's, no, it's right there. Oh no! Like I remember <laughs> it's not a few years the ago, there was, <laughs> there, there was a politician who was worried about um, wind turbines slowing the wind down and increasing yes. uh, global yes. warming. Yes, it was kind of strange. Um, yes. Now you were talking about off grid and how it's very difficult to. You know, to really measure. <laughs> Are there any expostulations? I mean, what, you know, does anyone have any there, you know, spitball of it? No, not really. I mean, I've come across some various guesses. I have not found anything. The problem is, is that a lot of off-grid is solar. Um, you have some off-grid other stuff. Sure. And we've talked about this before um, to one of the groups that was the, the biggest uptake, um, uptake of solar initially in California were the marijuana farmers because they didn't want to be caught um, tapping into the grid. So solar was perfect. They could hide out somewhere and um, grow stuff and nobody would be the wiser. And this is actually, and they, so they were very enthusiastic about solar energy initially. Of course, if it's not on the grid, you can't measure it. It's not getting measured. It's funny that you mentioned marijuana farmers because immediately when you you say that, you know, these uh, solar users are off the grid, so it's hard to measure, it reminds me of uh, cannabis culture. And by that, I mean cannabis agriculture. where it's really hard to say how much is being produced. You know, you yes. you have to kind of go yeah. by crime statistics and then you have to say, well, we only know what we know, what, right. what has been caught, you know. And it seems like a very similar model. And as solar, soon as- Yeah, it's, it's interesting that solar has sort of, has that overlap. Of course, it's not illegal anywhere. Not yet. Uh, um, but there are also, you have to think about this, is that there are groups that do, that may use solar power. In fact, the US Army is um, using solar. Uh, It's lighter, they can carry it, they don't have to ship diesel in. They're very heavily investigating that because one of the primary sources of casualties in both Afghanistan and Iraq, you know this, was um, convoys 
where they had to ship the fuel in so that they can carry it with them much, much safer. Of course, they don't want to be known where they are. Right. So that's that's a security issue. Um, And it's also and that's also not just difficult. It would be difficult to track anyway, because often they're mobile, too. And I think you even mentioned that in Mongolia that they had solar um, panels there, and they would bring them with them. All throughout Central Asia, in fact, uh, all of the stands, it's very, very popular with nomadic cultures. And um, you have to explain what stands. (laughs) uh, Yeah, the stands, so Central Asia, like- uh, uh, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Pakistan, all that stand actually means country. (laughs) So it's the Afghan country, it's the Pakistan, yeah. We we refer to it as the stands, (laughs) stands. uh, typically uh, over there. but uh, yeah, it's you know it's really essential to those cultures. It, the herders have been doing it for quite a while. And leaping back to your mention of the U.S. military's um, adoption of utilizing solar power, especially mobile solar, this is an idea that was started by um, Jim Channon, who huh. was uh, you know that was a first Earth Battalion upon which the movie um, The Men Who Stare at Goats was based. Right. I, I knew Jim. Uh, quite well, and he's, he was, rest in peace, a Hudson Valley native from okay. Tarrytown. Okay. And this was initially something right after Vietnam, uh, after mm. he'd done a tour in Vietnam, he came up with, and he did a lot of white papers about, well, about, about a lot of really wild, you know, unspooled ideas in a lot of ways, but solar power, he was enormous on. And the idea, he even had an idea of having, um, uh, I don't know what this solar collection cells are called, Heather. The you know black things that you see on uh, people's roofs. Yeah, the yeah PV. Well, yeah. <laughs> so he he had an idea to do almost like a mylar helmet covering mm. that actually used that and collected that way <laughs> for heaters for the evening. He, oh, he had wild okay. ideas, absolutely. Yeah. And so many of his ideas, uh, the U.S. military, especially the Army and the Marine Corps, uh, actually have initiated and execute in the field uh, daily now. It's kind of fascinating. I think after a quick word from the sponsor, we have to talk more about this. Sam's Meat Warehouse is a butcher with old-time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old-world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. This is attorney Bob Kruhulik of the law firm Beatty & Kruhulik, the lawyer guy. Tune in every Tuesday at 12 noon for the latest legal advice and tips. We're taking calls and giving answers to all your legal questions. That's every Tuesday at 12 noon on radio worth listening to. Hello, this is Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse. Today is Monday, April 5th. We have vaccines available for COVID-19 at the Goshen Point of Distribution. That's located at 23 Hatfield Lane. Anybody that is eligible can come to the pod today and sign up and walk in and be out within 25 minutes. So again, this is Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse. Today is Monday, April 5th. We have available vaccinations at the Goshen Point of Distribution located at 23 Hatfield Lane. 
That'll be available till 4 p.m. this evening. Thank you. WTBQ. And we're back with Tales and Trails. This is Jay Westerveld with our weekly show about things cultural and uh, things natural globally and locally. And my guest today is Heather McConnell, who's talking to us about a whole host of different things, as I often do as well. That's why when we run into each other uh, in <laughs> we can't Warwick, stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of you know all of a sudden it's nighttime. But uh, the big thing right now, uh, thesis of this conversation, has a lot to do with renewables and especially off-the-grid solar use in Central Asia. And yes. I think even more so Afghanistan. In, in Afghanistan. And there was a, a really great um, report recently that uh, kind of didn't really hit the radar too much, but um, of an investigative journalist who was actually more focused on the drug issue, but... Um, in Afghanistan, but uh, in Helmand and Kandahar, which are two southern, very dry provinces, uh, we've had a lot of issues there. The Taliban's pretty strong. And the farmers there are, whether they want to or not, they kind of don't have much choice, um, forced to fi uh, farm opium a lot. But to do this in these areas, what they have d discovered is that they can get solar panels very cheaply. I'm guessing they're coming across from um, the Chinese borders. And in the markets there, I mean, you can just see stacks 30 feet high of these solar panels. And these farmers are buying them up. And they're just small little farms. But what they do is then they set up a water pump. And their previous source of fuel for these water pumps was just dirty oil. The machines would always break down uh, yeah. and um, they couldn't get it. So instead they've got these clean running solar panels that power the water pumps and they are tapping into this aquifer underneath the southern part of Afghanistan that's huge. They are draining at it at a somewhat alarming rate, but they are using the solar panels not only to pump to power the water pumps, but also to supply electricity to their homes, which also, and incidentally, when you get that, you get light and kids can study at night for school. So this has a cascade effect. Um, they are growing other things besides opium, fortunately, and it would be yeah, great they, they to grow keep. cannabis. They, yeah, well, no, they grow, they are growing tomatoes. I mean, yes, Afghanistan I, at one point was Great known. tomatoes, by the way. Yeah. Really, like, it may shock a lot of New Jersey residents that Afghanistan, uh, to my taste, grows better tomatoes. I hate to say it, don't, <laughs> don't hate on me, but man. But they, they do. They actually um, were known as a area that grew beautiful fruit trees. They had um, wonderful dried fruits. They're known for that. Well, as I've Previous said before on the war. show, the apple is from the, Kazakhstan yeah, originally. And, yes, you know, we say, uh, you know, yes. it's American as apple pie. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, we have apple, apple fest here in Johnny Appleseed yeah, <laughs> went yeah, all over. No, Kazakhstan. Sure. So, um, yes. Yeah, so the solar is being used. And this um, there's one figure just jumped out at me, which is 65,000 individual solar arrays on these farms. So, and I looked it up to see, uh, you know, how much were these pumps requiring? It's like 40 or producing, how much are these solar panels? About 40 kilowatts per, which is not anything to sniff at. That's a lot of power and that's being generated by these by these solar, just very small, just a few panels, but enough to power these water pumps you and know, do I that. 
I have to jump in quickly too. You mentioned that these panels, you know, most likely come from China. I can tell you that solar panels in Central Asia at open air markets and open air markets are everywhere because of the uh, base nomadic culture. Something, let's say the size of this entry door to this room and, you know, listeners, whatever the entry door is to your uh, room, you know, your bathroom, kitchen or whatever, a solar panel of that size at a market, uh, an open air market in Central Asia, Chinese made, very efficient, uh, that that can be under ten dollars a piece, yeah. and uh, considerably yeah. less. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're like me with pale skin and you don't have an interpreter who's doing the work for you, it may be more expensive. But a local <laughs> can pay far less for one of those. Yes, and this is enabling them, giving them a not only a source of power but independence and um, in ability to earn a living. And also, by the way, it's also renewable energy. It's yeah. taking oil out of the equation, which is just phenomenal. And this is absolutely, of course, being done without any help from other governments. And what kind of amused me about this whole thing is that we put so much money into rebuilding Afghanistan and other governments have as well. And here sure. the Afghans have gone ahead and found a way to do huge amounts of renewable, not sure. albeit in the way we would prefer, but they are doing it, but completely uh, separate, doing, you know, a lot. So I thought that's a great that was pretty, point. Pretty, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, a lot of just straight funding goes to Afghanistan from several, uh, actually many uh, other nation states. And yeah. um Germany, Japan, Japan all been, a lot. they've all they've been rehabilitating these massive hydroelectric dams that the Soviets actually and people built. don't realize this. People think that they, you know, what their intake is like Stinger missiles from the U.S. and Kalashnikovs from Russia. That simply hasn't been the case for thirty years. No, at no, all. No, no. There's there's a lot of projects that have been going on, but the Afghans did the solar um, all by themselves. Now the concern, of course, Amazing. is the aquifer. Um, and the water, because as it is globally, and we were talking about this earlier um, off the air, is that water is a huge issue, and it's going to continue just to become bigger and bigger globally. And you know, I think there was this writer, particular writers, faulting the Afghans somewhat for tapping into their res their um, underground aquifer, but we did the same thing here with the old Ogallala. Everybody, everyone has done the same thing <laughs> everywhere. And I mean, that was done here in the U.S. I mean, the overuse to extinction of resources in the U.S. was occurring before Europeans, well, before white people were even here. I mean, mm. this is global everywhere. It's just natural that... As a species, we go in like a locust and uh, we use what's there and then we have to get inventive to continue surviving after we've destroyed what we were using. So for anyone to point a finger at Afghanistan, especially after, exactly. yeah, everybody yeah, else is exactly. using Afghanistan as a chessboard, you yeah. know, and so to point a finger is really absurd. It is. Shame yeah. on them, you know, using their own resources. <laughs> yes, and, and here we are. And, you know, even here in Warwick, I mean, that is something that you have been, I know, heavily involved in over the decades of, oh, yeah. the, you know, watching to see what's going on with local water resources, because we have to protect them. And we're blessed in this area with... I mean, it's ama always amazing to me when I used to fly back and forth between California and, and New York coming across and you see desert and desert and desert and then sure. you start to get to the Midwest and you just see 
so many lakes and so many little yeah. water bodies. I mean, there they just are. There we are. We have tons of water here, but we can't take that for granted. We absolutely cannot take our reservoirs, our fresh water for granted. So um, that's something that you know. I know you worked. You've worked very hard to do too. Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting. You, you know, we take everything in context because. You know, here in the Northeast, we've always been very blessed with water. And if people say, "Well, you know, it's we're we're at a little tedious time with water here in the Northeast," I just think of uh, even this morning I was talking with with friends in Mongolia, who you know their their parents their herds of livestock are dying right now because oh, there's wow. such like never before they're having such a dry spell in areas where already most herders have left the wealthier ones can hire trucks and oh, wow. put their hundreds and hundreds of head of sheep and goats uh, yaks etc onto trucks and send them away in the gobi especially the other people now you have to remember in january and february most of the goats and and sheep had their babies Mm -hmm. And so the mothers are, are trying to manufacture milk and the people are 100% reliant upon these animals. And it's hard work. You know, you get this feeling like you visit a culture like this and it's going to be romantic. Oh, I'm going to run around out in the field with the sheep. No, you're getting up every two hours, jumping on a horse if they have horses or if they're in a real dry area where they can't support horses like the Gobi or jumping on a dirt bike or into a car and going out there to keep your herd together and away from the wolves. These people have this thankless, unending job and now they're watching the mother sheep dying the mother goats dying just because of lack of water the soil has blown away and so they have it really bad and there's no un funding forthcoming and afghanistan isn't much better no so the moment you mention any you know quote unquote writer uh blaming them for using their aquifer it's it's really annoying you know it's, it's wild yeah it's it's interesting. I didn't realize that about Mongolia. That's oh, very it's concerning. Horrible. Is that is that? Do you think that's due to climate change, or do you think there's other sort of things going on there? Um, I think, you know, that's always a tough one for me. I don't like even to discuss climate change. I call it the c word because, with like scientific research in America, typically if you look at uh, a proposal. Um, you know, if, if somebody's uh, asking for proposals or something for research, they have a grading system typically. Like, let's say me with a cricket frog. Yes. Uh, I get things to try to uh, get grant funding to study these really rare frogs, these declining frogs. And right on the questionnaires for funding, it would say, will there be a component of climate change explored okay. for this? And you start to say, well, they're really steering the science. Now, I, I'm not a denier. Climate change is very real. We can see it. You know, yes. um, you and I, we're not teenagers. We've seen it in our lifetimes. Yes. We've seen definitive climate change. Is it anthropogenic? You know, did people create it? Probably. You know, there's another really cool Warwick resident, grew up in Sugarloaf. Um, he was uh, the head of the entomology department at the Museum of Natural History, um, Sasha Spector. His dad was Jerome oh. Spector, who we okay. just lost to COVID last year. Yes. And Jerome yes. was a beautiful human being on, on numerous levels and very good to me growing up but um you know i i've been to a few of sasha's talks and he pointed out how you know you can look at the stratification with c14 and stuff how where this climate change started and it started right with industrialization you know yes by us yes so yeah it's real we did it is this desertification uh, a result of it i think yeah very likely
Okay. I just, because climate change is such a politically sexy um, subject that distracts from sometimes other things that we may lose immediately, I just don't like to get involved in it too much. But I do truly, obviously I can see it every minute of my life. And right. I believe that we caused it. And that is probably the primary thing that started it there. Interesting. So thanks for getting me on the spot and making me actually <laughs> even admit it to myself. Yes. Uh, you know, that's great. Thank you. Well, I think it's also very, one of the things I've been following it for a while for climate change, you know, for as long as my, my, my mother was one of, you know, a group oh. in Ramapo who identified that as an yes. issue. And this was back in the 1980s. Um, so she was absolutely saying, hey, this is something we've got to pay attention to. And so it's been it's been around. But one of the interesting, most interesting aspects to me about the whole thing is that there has been so much research about weather and about how the climate works. And we're finding out so many interesting things. Yes, all the and corollary data yes, is really it's cool. it's fascinating. It is, and, unexpected and, stuff. And when we think about when we were kids and we used to watch, you know, the weather, and you, you, you would see some guy with a little, you know, plastic map of the local area, sure. and he would be moving felt um, Velcro H's and C's for highs and lows around, and now we can look at a storm in the South Pacific. <laughs> well, I have to say, before we go to another word, Heather, those guys were more accurate as far as <laughs> weather forecasts. And after a word from our sponsors, we maybe the weather, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sam's Mead Warehouse has been supplying restaurants and shops with the highest quality local and sustainably sourced prime and choice wholesale meat, steaks, poultry, seafood, and much more for over 20 years. Whether you're a small family butcher shop or a busy steakhouse, expect A1 service and the finest products available. Call Sam's at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off Route 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. This is Rocket Richie, the play-by-play -play guy. And this is Ryan Gosker, color commentator, reminding you the only place you can listen live to Warwick Wildcats football is right here on WTBQ. Brought to you in part by Leo Cadiz Ford and Nebraska Plumbing, Heating, and Cooling. Hello, this is Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse. Today is Monday, April 5th. We have vaccines available for COVID-19 at the Goshen Point of Distribution. That's located at 23 Hatfield Lane. Anybody that is eligible can come to the pod today and sign up and walk in and be out within 25 minutes. So again, this is Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse. Today is Monday, April 5th. We have available vaccinations at the Goshen Point of Distribution, located at 23 Hatfield Lane. That'll be available till 4 p.m. this evening. Thank you. WTBQ GHT Weather. Mostly sunny this afternoon, breezy and mild highs in the lower 60s. Mainly clear tonight, lows in the mid-30s. Another mostly sunny day for Tuesday, highs 60 to 65. Sun mixes with a few clouds Wednesday, highs near 65. More sunshine for Thursday, highs in the mid-60s. From the WTBQ Weather Center, 
I'm WeatherWorks meteorologist Brian Donegan. And we're back with Tales and Trails. This is Jay Westerveld on our weekly show. And my guest this week is Heather McConnell, author and um, cultural scientist at large. And uh, Heather, we were just talking before the break a little bit about nature because it's a beautiful, as I say on every show, bluebird day here in Warwick. I mean, it look is. at that cloudless yes. sky. Yes. Great Easter yesterday. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of it outside walking up some closed ski trails, which was just beautiful. And um, you had mentioned you, you might have a few uh, nature questions I, as I, well. I have a list. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, we have a show. <laughs> so a go for, for it. All right. The first one that I want to ask you, because I know, Jay, that you are constantly out in wet places, which are, you know, packed with all kinds of insects uh, like mosquitoes and all kinds of things. Are uh, we talking about chicks. dive bars? <laughs> <laughs> Too many mosquitoes. Oh, okay. I'm talking about uh, all the wetlands that I know you sure. love to haunt and check on all your frogs and turtles and uh, oh, yeah. all those guys. What the heck do you use for tick spray? And Great stuff? question. Yeah. Great question because um, I'll try my best to give you the shortest answer. Uh, almost shortest answer. When I was a little kid, we didn't have ticks. We, yeah, I remember they, growing here, up here. I Hudson never Valley. saw a tick. Didn't exist. The, you know, the first time, let's see, it was one deer, not one of mine, one my brother brought back, and he was hanging from our barn. Yes, we had a barn. And this was in the <laughs> mid-70s. He hung a, a deer out to dress, a nice buck. And I remember behind the ears, there were dog ticks, and we were shocked. Like, wow, wow look at this, you know. And uh, deer ticks weren't here yet. Then, sadly, you know, uh, I, I did under, undergraduate work in Eastern Long Island, which is still to this day the worst hit area for Lyme disease oh, in the wow. world. Okay. Um, and a lot of people were saying, well, it's because of Plum Island. I don't believe that's the reason. And there's good scientific uh, data to back up why that's not the reason. But anyway, uh, so suddenly ticks, you know, hit the uh, deer ticks in this area and Lyme disease really hit hard and harder than most people realize because for a number of reasons especially insurance lobbies etc you know it's it's underreported and uh, very very poor uh, testing regimens for it it really is I, I, it's it's really almost a pandemic here too. no not almost it, it's a it, definitive it pandemic it, it is. Uh, yeah. far, far worse than some more media sexy uh, present pandemics really even in terms of uh, mortality but without getting political um so what I've found is uh the best sprays, I try to avoid anything that has DEET, even though DEET is really great. You know, we used to have to use it overseas, and uh, that contributed to a lot of other illnesses that people were coming down with, especially military members. Oh, uh, wow. The DEET, 100% okay. DEET in a lot of sprays yeah. being used to this day by the military. It's very effective. Very against, effective. but <laughs> And if, you know, if you're a military, which is a, a structure... And you have soldiers who, let's say, for enlisted people, you're really only looking at needing them as your property for two or three years. Hey, great. You know, we don't worry about long-term health effects of a lot of yeah. things. Hence, Gulf War syndrome, things like that, you know, depleted uranium. Uh, but jumping back to Lyme disease, the Skin So Soft, um, it's called Extra Guard or something spray, little green cans from Avon. Oh, yeah. As silly as it sounds, <laughs> I found that to be effective. I wish I did my homework or even ran out to my car first because there's a, a peppermint oil-based spray that I really like. And if you just go to Amazon and buy pennyroyal oil, cut it with alcohol, 50-50, and put it into a spray bottle, it's the best tick repellent I know. 
and this is from direct field testing with this guy, and I'm, wow. I'm, a, I'm a tick magnet. Mosquitoes don't like me, ticks do. Um, I'm fortunate <laughs> as far as mosquitoes. And if you need mosquito repellent, I always recommend really cheap Dominican cigars. Uh, for, and dead serious, there's nothing like a Dominican cigar to scare mosquitoes away. But as far as tick repellent, um, definitely pennyroyal oil, but watch out, that's, and lemongrass oil. Pennyroyal oil is very toxic, so don't put it directly on your skin. If you wear a wide-brimmed hat, um, soak the hat in it. Number one best tick repellent, if you can deal with this kind of thing, Certainly the wide-brimmed hat with the soaked brim to keep them off your head if you go through branches and stuff, but chest waders, just cheap from Amazon or Walmart chest waders that trout fishermen use. Ticks aren't attracted to the rubber. You can spray it at will with a lot of uh, even DEET-based sprays, and they won't bother you, and they don't have a way to get up under your other clothes because you're clad in a solid you know, membrane of rubber up to your chest. That's great. That it is, really works. That that is that's great information, Jay. That Thank really you. Is. Well, it's, you know, th that's born of honestly forty years of field experience and uh, learning it the hard way because I, you know, I'm still a chronic Lyme uh, sufferer, although I've pretty much uh, beaten it over the last twenty five years uh, with the help of great doctors and stuff and family members, but. Yeah, that's a rough one. Uh, what's the next question? The next question is about foxes. Okay. Uh, we have a little fox, or probably a family, who seems to have decided to den uh, in the hillside behind us. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I've only seen the one, but uh, I'm assuming he came out of a, of a hole. It looked like he came out yeah. of a hole, kind of hung out, actually curled up to sleep again, then got up, stretched, curled up to sleep again. <laughs> and I thought, boy, you're having a hard time waking up today. They do. They, <laughs> they do. do. They do. But then eventually trotted off on his merry way. What I've noticed is I had spent some time in Glasgow in, in Britain and I know in Scotland, and they have foxes there too. And they are, to me, almost identical. Great question. To our foxes. Now, I would think our foxes would not be as closely related to the British foxes, but they would be closer to something from Mongolia. So why don't we have Mongolian foxes, <laughs> or, or Great do we? Great question. So there, there are several uh, answers. And um, number one, red foxes exact same species in eurasia and here in in north america wow same thing okay same, same thing <laughs> and don't quote me uh, again i i don't have uh, notes in front of me or a field guide i believe it was uh volpe's fulva but somebody else would have to look it up I, they may just be general canis now but uh anyway um so they say that when european settlers came here there were red foxes however just like starlings pigeons and um, English sparrows, fox hunters brought foxes over from Europe. So oh, that makes sense. It's thought I, that they've okay. always interbred yes. since white men came here, but yes. there were red foxes before. Now you mentioned Mongolia, and as we'd say less politically, uh, Greater Siberia. Uh, why don't we have um, you know Siberian foxes and things here? Well, we have. Um, most likely because it all occurred so much long ago when Beringia existed, the landmass between Alaska and Siberia. Um, gray foxes, to a degree, some of their cousins uh, may have come over here and then interbred with the gray foxes that were here. Now, red foxes occur throughout Siberia as well. So that one same species really spans the globe. Wow. Okay. Coyotes uh, that we have, and now we, we're learning here in um, 
these metropolitan areas, how really dynamic coyote populations can be. Well, in Eurasia and even in Africa and Europe, uh, you know, they're called jackals. It's not exactly the same species, but a lot of, you know, genetic bottlenecking can occur and they can change a bit, but it's very likely the same. The gray wolf, you know, timber wolf. Yes. Same yeah. critter. Wolves. Yeah. Wolves, Here, yeah. our coyotes, and this is something you'd have to dig for for this data, but it, it's, you know, very clearly supported uh, by genetic data. Our eastern coyotes seem to carry some DNA of the red wolf, which is a, a southeastern wolf species. And they look a lot different than the regular timber wolf. They're, they're an endangered species in North America. They live in the, the American Southeast. Google the red wolf, and actually you'll be shocked. Some photos, they look exactly like a, just a very reddish coyote. Well, right here in Warwick, New York, um, Debbie DeFrancisco, she was yes. a maybe, Debbie maybe DeFrancisco. She has wonderful photos, and you see them in our Facebook group, Warwick Wildlife, of uh, blonde and red coyotes. Oh, interesting. Whole population I hadn't noticed that. And they look it's wonderful. No different She's than a Red fantastic Wolf. photographer. Fata Absolutely. And great naturalist. Yeah. I, she sees so much stuff when she's out yeah, there. She's it's amazing. Wonderful. So, uh, yeah, so they're, you know, perhaps uh, pre glacially, a lot of these things were a lot more closely related. And then they got to branch off a bit and show a little more variation. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, more or less the thought. Red, red foxes were likely here, but nobody can say definitively, oh, they were definitely a pre Columbian uh, occurrence. And it's interesting because they are so comfortable around humans. Too they are surprisingly, and they are very clever. I guess they, can, they have all sorts of tricks about shaking off people following them. Amazing and they tricks. are just, uh, yeah, they really, they are very, very clever. You know, some of even things from, I, I don't know if it's Aesop's Fables or, or whom, but. Some of the things, there was a very interesting fable about the fox uh, with the stick in his mouth to get rid of like fleas or something. That's oh, real. They yes. do that. Yes, they do. They go into the water and then they um, hold the stick and all the fleas go on um, as they submerge themselves in the water. And then finally, they just go under and leave the fleas on the stick yeah. and go off. That really happens. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. very smart. So another exciting um, wildlife thing that I, we've seen recently or just yesterday, one of our neighbors spotted was a bobcat. Oh, they're on the upswing around and here. Not only, yes, not only what did they spot him, but he had a huge woodchuck, apparently. Nice. Thank <laughs> you, I Mr. Said, Bobcat. Yes, thank you, Mr. Bobcat. You can take as many woodchucks and as squirrels as you want. Bobcats <laughs> But they are, are on the upswing. That's good to hear. Incredibly too. so. When yeah. I was a kid, they were so rare around here. Just like, I mean, they were just in the upper ridgelines, the rocky ridgelines far away from human habitation. And uh, that's where the deer used to be when we were kids too. You know, our, our dads and our grandfathers used to always go away to hunting camps just yes. to find deer. And yeah, you couldn't find them. Now you have to fight them to get into your car, yeah. you know, in, in a village center. <laughs> yes. Well, coyote, oh, coyotes, well, to a degree they are, but bobcats are doing very much the same thing. Out in Big Sur, California, at my grandparents' uh, place, rest in peace, uh, both of them, they had these really tame bobcats, especially the juveniles, the kittens. And if we'd sit out on their deck uh, overlooking the Pacific, you know, you're just sitting there, this beautiful view of the Pacific, and you'd notice movement kind of like next to you, next to your, wow. your plate. There'd be these little juvenile <laughs> bobcats nice. who would just kind of ignore the fact that you were alive and just walk by. And I'm starting to hear reports like that around here. Harmless to humans. Yes. Uh, absolutely yes. harmless. And the to other humans. thing too, which makes is very encouraging to me, is I know that they found this 
in different ecosystems as you get an increase in predators actually a sign of health in the ecosystem by far they are it's for instance you know and you get that in the ocean more sharks the better really absolutely um and uh, same thing with the more predators it's actually healthier and they've seen that certainly with wolves in the West. You know, too. this they've is done studies on that. So. This is something that's missed by a lot of biologists, it, believe yeah. it or not, because uh, most people, and unfortunately, biologists, especially policymakers federally and at the state level, they they look at uh, ecosystemics like the prey, the animals that other things eat, like their numbers are dictated by how many predators there are. Actually, it's the other way around, That's, obviously. Yeah. Just, you know, it's how much prey there is, how many field mice there are. That's what tells you how many hawks, how many bobcats and things you're going to have. That's yes. how that's how nature works. And unfortunately, that's often missed. After the break, we'll do more of that. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sam's Meat Warehouse is a butcher with old-time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old-world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. Hi, this is Dr. David Leach, the superintendent of the Warwick Valley Central School District and host of Your Schools. Listen every Monday at 12 noon to learn what's happening in your schools right here on WTBQ, radio worth listening to. Hello, this is Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse. Today is Monday, April 5th. We have vaccines available for COVID-19 at the Goshen Point of Distribution. That's located at 23 Hatfield Lane. Anybody that is eligible can come to the pod today and sign up and walk in and be out within 25 minutes. So again, this is Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse. Today is Monday, April 5th. We have available vaccinations at the Goshen Point of Distribution located at 23 Hatfield Lane. That'll be available till 4 p.m. this evening. Thank you. And we're back with Tales and Trails. This is Jay Westerveld, uh, host of this weekly show uh, about human culture, natural culture, globally and locally. And my guest today is Heather McConnell. And we were just talking about some local nature stuff. We went kind of from global things, uh, talking about uh, sustainable systems, energy systems. And we're talking a little bit more right now um, just about uh, natural phenomena that Heather has seen and had some questions about. And because people are getting out more than ever and nature's really moving around, this seems to be a, an exciting subject. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if you'd like to ask more questions, great. If well, I just want wanted to, about... to bring up, you know, we were just talking about the, um, all the deer, the deer boom in this, in the country. I believe Orange County is the largest, um, has the largest number of deer car collisions in the state. That would um, not surprise me at because all. Because yeah. there's just that intersection. But 
part of it is with this overpopulation is you also unfortunately um, do see diseases arising in the population. And there are some um, wasting disease. I think that one came in from Midwest, but there's been a bunch of diseases that local deer population has been suffering from. And that's where predators will come in because predators will take down those weaker individuals, literally culling the herd and um, improving the overall health of the population. Absolutely. And uh, that is actually something to be encouraged, uh, not discouraged. So, yeah, sadly, you know, again, a lot of state and federal agencies, because they're um, money driven and they have to be, you know, our taxes support them. They push game initiatives more than they push initiatives of ecological health. And with the case of white-tailed deer, there were always such controls about how many you're allowed to shoot or hunt each year. Well, the, these things, as they live nearer and nearer to people's homes, where you you certainly cannot shoot them, their numbers have increased dramatically. And of course, all of us plant beautiful, wonderful food plants yes. for the deer by accident, <laughs> yes. and they do really well. Yes. Well, sadly, the numbers have gone up like crazy and the here in new york i'll say very directly the state response with the department of environmental conservation has been uh, tragically comical instead of looking at ways to cull the deer or even try to enhance natural predation they're trying to control these diseases which initially might sound really good but these diseases occur whenever there's an overpopulation of a species. It's natural. These are nature's way, sadly, um, on a pathogenic scale of knocking numbers back down so yes. that the stronger survive, those that have some mutation that somehow fights that disease, they're the ones that flourish while the other ones die. And we have fewer deer and perhaps bigger, more robust deer again. Interestingly, every year, and this year it's been like I've never seen before, yearling deer from the previous Yes. season are tiny there are some near my they mom's house they're not much bigger than a tabby cat i mean and they're these are yearlings they're they're wow. the size of a almost a newly that's a, very small i have great photos yeah. of them they're tiny they look like key deer that we see down in the florida key i was just going to say that sounds like a completely different species almost well what's happening is this is a a variation a mutation if you will that we're seeing because of overpopulation as they get to be such large herds of deer that do better if they're mobile and can hide out in little shrubberies around homes for some reason the smaller ones are doing better and they're just overwintering and that the hunters way. probably aren't taking those i know By i spoke law, to a, a, well i spoke to a hunter recently and he saw he he took deer last uh fall they got several but they did not take there they saw a lot of small deer yeah so, you know there are there are declining numbers of hunters every year the deer numbers go up i'm not pushing hunting hey i'm a hunter but I'm not pushing that uh, by any means. What I'm saying is the state response is always just to try to increase the numbers of any animal that people hunt or fish to increase, you know, fiscal numbers. And it's a they've created this situation in New York. The New York yes. State DC created this situation. Now they're worried about chronic wasting disease because it's a disease and because that state agency is fiscally controlled by um, the Cornell Ag School not to really be directly confused with Cornell University, even though they share a campus, it's right. not really the same. Um, they love studying diseases and there's a lot of money in it. So they push chronic wasting disease and let's get these the New York State DEC to control this and work on it. We have much bigger ecological issues than that. I'd rather see, I hate to say it, 
a lot of the deer die off, it would be ecologically better for us. Yes. We'll see a boom in vultures. Yes, well, we have seen a boom in vultures. Because of this Because of this, yeah. The roadkill is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And also, not even just roadkill, but ambient kill from diseases and and other things. Uh, The vulture numbers around here are like never before. Yeah, they're, they're all, and plus, not only do you have the native or the turkey vultures, but now we've got the black, black vultures, vultures coming the in, too, which is just incredible. And that's too. another problem, too, both for um, stock agriculture and for wildlife, because these black vultures are a much more voracious thing that kill live animals. They're known, I don't want to gross listeners out or gross you out, Heather, but they're known <laughs> to... Um, well, eat baby livestock uh, before they're even fully birthed. They're they're pretty gross animals. Uh, oh, black wow. vultures. Yeah, they do a lot of horrible things. Um, and I think you actually had somebody on your show, and I listened to him, and he was talking about the Mike black Ballin. vulture. Yes, and he was actually talking about the possibility that the black vultures may have brought ticks. That was me. Actually. Oh, that was that, you. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, oh, that's, yeah. That's a possibility too. Which it, is it, amazing. It's, a, it's an interesting one. It's one of those things. Although that guest, uh, Mike Mallon, is brilliant, and he'll cite correlations, and then he'll remind us that's the correlation, that's correlation of the data, but not, it's not definitive. Exactly. You know, but the thing with the ticks and the black vultures yeah that's that's my own uh little hypothesis that may be yeah who knows um okay so another question oh, moving boy. from animals i know, I know so. who's going to be the guest next week <laughs> okay i'll have more questions i'm sure sure um i noticed that you did make a comment about somebody had talked about a tree that had been absolutely ripped apart that was the pileated woodpecker who you right. thought had probably done it but the per- one of the people mistakenly thought that possibly it was an ash that had may have been felled by an emerald ash borer. Now you were questioning why. Now why? I know the emerald ash borer is around. Sure. Um, is there something else killing the tree though too, or was there something about that that you were concerned because? I want, well, let me t- run this by you, too. Was, this is fascinating. There's a book called Hidden Life of Trees, yes, which is an excellent book. I don't know if you've read it yet. But, Not yet. Um, there's, there's some stuff in it that I have some issues with, but for the most part, it's got wonderful information. It's based on forestry, mostly in Germany. Now, one of the things he said, and I've discovered this in my own backyard, literally, it's amazing, is that when you have tree growth coming back, initially. Um, And I'm estimating that we had fruit trees on the back hillside about 170 years ago that were planted. They were probably died out within the last 100 years. The native trees started growing back. But what happens when you have an open space and you have a lot of tree growth, they bolt, basically. They grow too fast. They're too weak. And I was becoming very alarmed at the number of trees coming down. Just like the down. tiny deer. Exactly. Well, it's the same model. It's the same plant yes. model. Um, I was becoming very alarmed at the trees coming down on my back hillside. Especially ashes. Uh, ashes, definitely. Yeah. But there was a lot of other stuff, too. And then I read this passage, and I thought to myself, it's about 100 years. This is exactly what yeah. it's doing. That was the first growth. Now the trees that have been kind of slowly growing and are stronger have a better structure. They will actually be the ones to come up in a secondary growth. Exactly. And I realized almost, I'm guessing, 99% of the trees around here are 
primary growth and that's why we see so many trees come down i don't know that there's any original forest left well again as as i mentioned before both the federal fish and wildlife service u.s forest service and actually i shouldn't say both because most state agencies especially here in new york that have to do with environmental conservation they're driven by research institutions and here in new york it's cornell uh cornell ag school as i say and cornell ag school is funded uh greatly by pesticide manufacturers oh dear. so they're okay. going to drive state and this isn't conspiracy theory this is straight data and numbers especially from someone who's dealt with these agencies they're going to drive um they're, they're going to drive policy toward well better living through chemicals so they'll you know a man with a hammer will find only a nail in every problem and the folks at cornell and they're thereby the state agencies uh wh whom they uh fund and control tend to look only for causes that can be fixed by their chemicals and you know i don't mean to sound like that guy but it's simply factual in this case no one's really looking at fungi with these uh ash trees the white ash and uh, what i've seen are you know, certainly the appearance of fungal overgrowth on these trees, killing them like crazy, especially Goose Pond Mountain State Park. And I look at these, especially those that have fallen this winter, I pull the bark off and all, I'm not seeing the galleries that you would typically that see from the larvae. That you would see the, with the ash None at all. Okay. But these trees are, they, as we say uh, in the logging industry, they pop. Uh, when you cut a white ash right before it's ready to go, it just pops. They explode, they fall down, and you'll hear it at night when they're dropping because they don't have very dense uh, core wood at all. They, they're kind wow. of almost foamy. So they pop, they drop, go around, look for loose bark, knock it off. You won't find the galleries. I, I haven't seen emerald ash borer in any of these, and I've looked at certainly scores and scores of them out in the woods, okay. those that have dropped and look bad. So then the pileated woodpecker, of course, goes after them because they're looking primarily for ants. So they tear them up, they throw the bark all over, and people, because we just go by what we see in the paper and only the really sensationalist things are the things that make state agencies money are what make the newspaper or social media. People say, oh, emerald ash borer, you know, this is terrible. But I think what we should do, because we're just about out of time here, Heather, we just have a few seconds left, is first I have to thank you so much for you're very welcome and i'd like it if you could come on again uh maybe Absolutely. even just to talk more about these things because there's so much there yes i i, I have a, a list <laughs> let's get that list then next and week, i think there's okay. probably a lot of other people too that would love to ask you more questions too maybe we'll so. allow call-ins yes. which i rarely do on this show um well heather again thank you so much for thank coming you. in today and uh folks listening fun. thanks for tuning in and listen in next week because we'll also have your questions <laughs>